Hey there, welcome to another bonus edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Because the next official episode isn't scheduled to drop until Tuesday, April 25th, I thought I'd pick up where I left off in my reading of Richard Watley's classic work on the introduction to Christian evidences, which I've occasionally featured on a variety of bonus episodes. In this section of his book, Watley provides a summary of the evidence he has surveyed thus far, and also begins a discussion of internal evidence for the authenticity of the New Testament. Lesson 9. Summary of Evidences How comes it that some persons pretend that an ordinary Christian cannot be taught to understand the evidence for their religion, but must be content to take it for granted, as the pagans do theirs, because they've been brought up in it? It is because when they speak of the evidences of Christianity, they mean all the evidences. And certainly, to be well acquainted with all of these would be enough to occupy the whole life of a studious man, even though he should devote himself entirely to that study. Indeed, to go through all the books that have been written on the subject, and to examine and thoroughly master all the arguments on both sides that have ever been brought forward, would be more than any one man could accomplish, even if he had nothing else to do. But there are things which you may have very good reasons for believing, though you may not know a tenth part of the proofs of them that have been or might be produced. For instance, you may have good grounds for believing that there is such a city as Rome, and that it was formerly the capital of a mighty empire, of which Britain was one of the provinces. But all the evidence that might be brought forward in proof of this would be enough to occupy a learned man for many years if he were to examine it thoroughly. It is sufficient in any case if we have enough evidence to warrant our belief, even if there should be much more evidence of the same thing besides, which we have not examined. Therefore, though most Christians cannot be expected to know the whole, or nearly the whole, of the proofs of their religion, that is no reason against their seeking and obtaining proofs enough to convince a reasonable mind. Even that small portion of the evidences you have now been learning is perhaps more than sufficient for this purpose, though it is but a part even of what any man is able to understand. It is certain that Christianity now exists, and that Jesus Christ is acknowledged as Lord and Master, in words at least, among all the most civilized people of the world. It is certain, too, that this cannot have always been the case, but that Christianity must have been introduced, by some means or other, among the Jews and pagans who must have had some reasons that appeared to them very strong to induce them to change the religions they had been brought up in. You know also that this great revolution in the religion of the world was begun by a person of humble rank, in one of the least powerful and least esteemed of the ancient nations. It was not a mighty warrior, or a rich and powerful prince, or a learned philosopher, but a Jewish peasant that brought about this wonderful change. And you are sure, accordingly, that no one, whether a friend or enemy, can reasonably doubt that Jesus of Nazareth is at any rate the most extraordinary and most important person who ever appeared in the history of the world. Again, you have seen that there is good reason to be certain that Jesus and his apostles propagated their religion by an appeal to miracles, that is, they professed to perform miracles beyond human power as a sign of their being messengers from God, and no one has ever been able to point out any other way in which they did or could introduce their religion. Nor can we conceive how a few Jewish peasants without power or wealth or learning or popular prejudice on their side could have been at first either believed or listened to if they had not begun by appealing to the testimony of miraculous signs. Now even this would have been no help but a hindrance to their preaching if their pretensions to superhuman powers had not been true. Because surrounded as they were by adversaries and men prejudiced against them, any attempt at imposture would have been detected and would have exposed them to general scorn. 
and accordingly it does not appear that any of the pagan religions ever was first introduced and established among adversaries by an appeal to the evidence of miracles. We have good grounds for believing, therefore, that the people of those times, even the enemies of Christianity, found it impossible to deny the fact of the miracles being wrought, and thence were driven to account for them as the work of evil spirits. And this we find recorded not only in the writings of Christian authors, but also in those of Jewish and pagan adversaries. We find accounts, too, in the works of pagan writers, as well as in the New Testament, of the severe persecutions which great numbers of the early Christians had to encounter. And this furnishes a proof of their sincerely believing not only the truth of their religion, but also the miracles which many of them professed to have seen, and in which they could not have been mistaken. For if these miracles had been impostures, it is incredible that such numbers of men should have exposed themselves to dangers and hardships to attest to the truth of them without anyone being induced by suffering to betray the imposture. That the works of these writers really have come down to us and that the general sense of them is given in our translations, you have good reason to be convinced, even without understanding the original languages or examining ancient manuscripts. You need not take the word of a scholar for this or feel such full confidence in the honesty of any two or three learned men as to trust that they would not deceive you in anything and to believe on their authority. There is and has been so great a number of learned men in various countries and ages, some opposed to Christianity and others, Christians of different sects, opposed to each other, that they never could have agreed in forging a book or putting forth a false translation. On the contrary, any supposed mistake or fraud of any of them, the rest are ready to expose, so that there is no reasonable doubt as to anything in which they all agree. And this, you have seen, is the same sort of evidence on which most men believe that the earth is round, that there is such a city as Rome, and many other things which they have not themselves seen, but which rest on the uncontradicted testimony of many independent witnesses. You have seen also that in respect of the books of the Old Testament, there is this very remarkable circumstance that they are preserved with the utmost care and reverence by the Jews, who reject Jesus Christ, although these books contain what appear to Christians most remarkable prophecies of him. And it was pointed out to you that there are many parts of these prophecies of which we see the fulfillment before us, though the early Christians did not, namely that a religion should arise among the Jews which would have a widespread among the Gentiles, but yet that it should be a new religion, not the same as taught by Moses, and that this religion should spring not from the whole nation, but from one individual of that nation, and he a person despised, rejected, and persecuted even to death by his own people. All this which is so unlike what anyone would have foretold by mere guesswork, but which we see has actually come to pass, is prophesied in books which enemies of Christianity reverence as divinely inspired. Now, if you reflect attentively on all these heads of evidence which you have been learning and of which this short summary has just put before you, you will perceive that even a portion of it might be fairly considered as a strong reason to be given of the hope that is in you. But then, when you take the whole of it together, it is sufficient to satisfy any reasonable mind. For to believe that so many marks of truth should be brought together by chance or by man's contrivance in favor of a false story, to believe this, I say, would be much greater credulity than to believe that the gospel really was from God. These marks of truth, you should observe, are a vast deal stronger when taken together. For each of the separate proofs may be regarded as a distinct witness, and when several independent witnesses give the same evidence, their agreement may prove the matter completely, even when no one of the witnesses is by himself deserving of confidence. Suppose, for instance, that one out of several men, none of them much to be relied upon, gives a particular account of some transaction which he professes to have seen. 
You may think it not unlikely that he may have invented the story or dreamed about it. But then, if his account is confirmed by someone else, and still yet another, and you're sure that these men could have had no communication with the first, you then conclude that it must be true, because they could not have chanced, all of them, to invent the same story or to have had the same dream. And so it is when you have a number of different marks of truth meeting together as they do in the gospel history. Even if each of these, taken separately, had much less force than it actually has, it would be infinitely unlikely that they should all happen to be found united in a false story. These arguments, however, have been presented to you very briefly, and hereafter, if you will study them at leisure and dwell upon them more fully, in your own mind and in conversation with others, you will see the force of them still more and more. But though these arguments are enough to satisfy you that an ordinary Christian who does not pretend to be a learned man may yet believe in his religion on better grounds than the pagans have for believing in theirs, there are still many other arguments besides, some of which are quite within the reach of the unlearned. In particular, what is called the internal evidence of Christianity, that is, the proof drawn from the character of the religion itself and of the Christian scriptures, is a kind of evidence which you will find more and more satisfactory the more you reflect on and study the subject if you endeavor at the same time sincerely to live up to the knowledge you acquire and to be the better for it in your life. Lesson 10, Internal Evidences, Part 1 If the Christian religion was not from God, it must have been from man. It must have been a cunningly devised fable of artful impostors, or else a dream of crazy enthusiasts, or some mixture of these two, if it was not really what it professed to be, namely, a divine revelation. To examine, then, the internal evidence is to inquire which of these is the most likely supposition, looking to the character of the gospel itself, to consider whether the religion itself and the Christian scriptures seem more likely to have proceeded from the God of truth or from mere men who were either designing impostors or wild enthusiasts. Now it may be said that we are very imperfect judges of the question, what is likely to have come from God, since we have such a faint and imperfect knowledge of him, so that we cannot decide with any confidence what we ought to expect in a divine revelation. This is very true. But you should remember that the question is not whether Christianity seems to us likely in itself to have come from God, and is just such as we should have expected a divine revelation to be, but whether it is more likely to have come from God or from man. For we know that the religion does exist, and therefore we have to consider not merely whether it is like what might be looked for in a true revelation from God, but also whether it is unlike what might be looked for in the work of human impostors or enthusiasts. Now, this is a question of which we are able to judge, because we have, or may acquire, such a knowledge of human nature as to decide on good grounds what is likely to have proceeded from man's devices. And the more you learn of mankind in the works of various writers, and again, the more you study the Christian religion, the more you will see how different it is from any religion that mere men would have been likely to contrive. 
A great part of this internal evidence is such as to require some experience and knowledge of the world, as well as acquaintance with the scriptures, to enable anyone to take it in properly. But still, there are several internal marks of truth that may be pointed out, which, though but a small part of what you may hereafter find, are yet of great importance. For example, if the Christian religion had been contrived and propagated by a number of designing men in such a way as would have seemed to them the best suited for gaining converts, you may be sure that they would naturally have put forth some books purporting to be written by Jesus himself, laying down the principles and precepts of his religion and answering to the books of the law written by Moses. All men who were at all disposed to listen to the preaching of the gospel and to examine the Christian scriptures would have been likely to inquire in the first place, as no doubt many persons did, for something written by the very founder of the new religion. If, therefore, there had been any forgery, the forged books, or at least the principle of them, would certainly have been attributed to Jesus as their author. And all that were not attributed to him would naturally have been published with the names of the most distinguished and eminent of his apostles. Now, the fact is, as you know, that of all the Christian scriptures, there is not one book professing to be written by Christ himself, and of the four Gospels, there are only two that are attributed even to any of the apostles as the writers, St. Matthew's and St. John's. And again, of these two, St. John alone is much distinguished among the apostles, very little being recorded of St. Matthew in particular. The other two Gospels, and also the book of Acts, which records the first propagation of Christianity, have come down to us as the work of two men who appear indeed to have been companions of some of the most eminent of the apostles, but who did not claim to be apostles themselves. All this is just the reverse of what might have been expected from crafty and designing men, seeking to impose on the credulous for the purpose of gaining converts. You should remember, too, that if the books of the New Testament which contain accounts of so many wonderful occurrences were really published near the very time when these occurrences were said to have taken place, the accounts in these books must be substantially true, because any material falsity would have been immediately exposed by the adversaries of Christianity. And if, on the other hand, these books had been forged a hundred or two hundred years later, and had been falsely attributed to the authors whose names they bear, we should undoubtedly have found in them the title of Christians applied to believers in Jesus by themselves. For that title has been so applied in every age down to this day by all Christian writers since the times of the apostles. And therefore, there can be no doubt that any writer in the second or third or fourth century who is composing pretended gospels and epistles would have continually called Christians by that very name which he and all his neighbors had been accustomed to employ. But in all the books of the New Testament, we do not find once the title of Christians applied by themselves to one another. The word occurs but three times in the New Testament, in chapters 11 and 26 of the book of Acts, and in chapter 4 of Peter's first epistle. And in no one of these places is it thus employed. It is mentioned as a name first given to the disciples at Antioch in Syria. King Agrippa, again, uses the word in speaking to Paul, and the Apostle Peter introduces the word as denoting what was accounted a crime by the heathen rulers. Quote, if any man says he suffers for being a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But addressing the Christians themselves, the apostles never call them by that name, but believers or faithful, elect, saints, brethren, etc. The reason why the apostles always used these names in preference to the new name of Christians probably was in order to point out that Christianity was not so much a new religion as a continuation and fulfillment of the old, and a completion of God's original design, and that all believers, whether Jews or Gentiles, were admitted to the same privileges, only much enlarged, which had belonged to God's people Israel. Now the Israelites are continually called in the Old Testament brethren, saints, elect, etc. 
and hence it was no doubt that the apostles chose to confine themselves to these titles. After their time, when Jerusalem and its temple had been destroyed, and the admission of the Gentiles into the number of God's people ceased to appear anything strange, the church consisting chiefly of Gentiles, then Christians naturally adopted among themselves the title which had long been in common use among the rest of the world. But whatever was the cause of the earliest Christians abstaining from the use of that title, the fact that they did so abstain is clear. Here, therefore, you have a decisive internal proof of the antiquity of our sacred books. Had they been composed at a later period than that of the apostles, we should have found in them the disciples continually addressed by the name of Christians, which is, in fact, never once so used. Again, it is certain that at the time when Jesus appeared, the Jews were earnestly expecting a Christ or Messiah, that is, an anointed deliverer, who should be a mighty prince who would free them from subjection to the Romans and make them a powerful nation ruling over all the Gentiles. And this is what is still expected by the Jews at this day. Now, if Jesus and his apostles had been enthusiasts or impostors, or a mixture of the two, they would most likely have conformed to the prevailing expectations of the people. They would have been likely to give out that the kingdom of heaven, which was at hand, was a glorious worldly empire, such as the Jews had fixed their hopes upon, instead of a kingdom not of this world, which is what they did preach. And we know that the several pretended Christs who appeared a little before the destruction of Jerusalem, and even after it, did profess each to come as a temporal deliverer and conqueror, agreeably to the prevailing notions. Jesus and his disciples, on the contrary, not only proclaimed no temporal kingdom, but did not even promise any worldly success and prosperity to their followers, but told them that, quote, in the world they should have tribulation, John 16.33. And this is the more remarkable because the Jews had been always brought up in the notion that worldly prosperity was a sign of God's favor, such as being the rewards promised in the Mosaic Covenant. The hardships and afflictions in this life, which men were told they must make their minds up to if they became Christians, were not only disheartening, but also likely to raise a prejudice in their minds against Jesus and his disciples as if they could not really be favored by God, according to the prophecy of Isaiah. Quote, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53.4 All this, therefore, is what either impostors or enthusiasts of any nation would have been very unlikely to teach. Again, if the disciples had been designing men willing to flatter the prejudices of the Jews for the sake of making converts, but yet afraid of proclaiming Christ as a temporal king and deliverer for fear of provoking the Romans, they would at least have taught that the Jews were to have some kind of spiritual superiority. That is, that they were still to be God's peculiar people in a religious point of view. They would have taught that Jerusalem was still to be the holy city, and that all men were to come there to worship and to offer sacrifices in the temple, and were to observe all the laws of Moses, in order to obtain God's favor. This would have been the most acceptable doctrine to the Jews, and what the apostles, being themselves Jews, would hardly have failed to teach if the gospel had been a scheme of their devising. And accordingly, we learn from the book of Acts and from several of Paul's epistles, especially Galatians, that many of the Jewish converts did labor to bring the Gentile Christians to the observance of the Mosaic law. But the apostles never would admit this doctrine, but taught that the Gentile Christians were not to take upon themselves the yoke of the Jewish law and were perfectly on a level with their Jewish brethren, and that under the gospel, Jerusalem and its temple had no particular sanctity. Now, all this is just the opposite of what might have been expected of impostors or enthusiasts preaching a religion of their own fancy or contrivance. It is true indeed that to have given this preeminence to the Jews and to their city and temple, though it would have been flattering to the Jewish prejudices and might have been likely to allure converts of that nation, would not have been so acceptable to the Gentiles as a religion which should have put them on an equal footing with the Jews. 
But if the gospel had been artfully framed to gratify and allure the Gentiles, it would at least have one ordinance which would have been acceptable to the Jews and Gentiles alike, namely the slaying of beasts in sacrifice. In this point, the Jewish and all the different pagan religions agreed. Sheep and oxen were slain as burnt offerings on the altars of both Jehovah and the heathen gods. Indeed, it is a kind of worship so suitable to men's notions that it was revived several ages later by Muslims, who have a sacrifice of a camel on certain festivals as an ordinance of their religion. But at the time when Christianity first arose, neither Jew nor pagan had ever heard of or conceived such a thing as a religion in which no animals were sacrificed. They had always been so accustomed to these offerings that they most likely regarded them as essential to every religion and were astonished and shocked finding that the Christian religion was without them. And it is incredible that Christianity should have been without them if it had been a religion invented by men. It would never have entered into the minds of its authors to make it an exception to all the religions that existed or that they had ever heard of. And that, too, is a point which would be likely to shock all men's feelings and prejudices. The whole character, indeed, of the Christian religion differs so widely in many particulars, both from the Jewish and from all the other religions which had ever existed in the world, that one cannot conceive how any men could, of themselves, have thought of any such system, much less thought of it as likely to be well received. And the same may be said of the character of Jesus himself, as depicted in the Gospels. It is quite unlike all that had ever before appeared, or been described or imagined. Another point to be observed is this that mere men seeking to propagate their religion in whatever way they might think best would naturally have been so eager to make converts that they would not have insisted very much on a strict moral life in those who did not show great zeal in their master's cause, but would have allowed active services to their party to make amends for some neglect of other duties. Muhammad, accordingly, declared that the highest place in the divine favor belonged to those who fought bravely in his cause. And in almost all sects and parties, you may see the same disposition in men to reckon zeal in their cause as a virtue so great that it will excuse many inconsiderable faults in private life. This mode of judging, which is so natural to man, is just the opposite of what we find in Jesus Christ and his apostles. They not only taught their followers to be pure and upright and kind and humble, but taught them also that nothing they could say or do in the cause of the Christian faith could make up for the lack of these Christian virtues. Jesus not only compares a man who should hear his precepts without acting upon them as one who builds a house upon the sand and reproaches those who call him Lord, Lord, and yet does not do the things he says, Matthew 7.26 and Luke 6.46, but he also declares that those who had preached in his name and who had even performed many wonderful works should be disowned and rejected by him if they themselves were workers of iniquity, Matthew 7.22 and 23. And the apostles in like manner taught their converts that their professing the Christian faith was a reason for requiring not the less but the more strictness of morals from them, 1 Corinthians 5, 11, and 12, and that even the miraculous powers bestowed upon them were worthless if they had not the charity which is humble, gentle, patient, and self-denying, 1 Corinthians 13. All this is what we might have expected from teachers sent from God, and experience shows how different it is from what might have been expected of mere human teachers acting according to their own judgment and their own natural feelings.
If you'd like to download a copy of Richard Watley's Introduction to Christian Evidences, I've provided a link for you to do just that in the show notes of this episode. And while you're there, you could also put a little something in the tip jar or upgrade to a paid subscription via Substack. Thanks so much for joining me for this special bonus edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast, and I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. We'll be right back.